0: today to be joined by three people who are going to talk with me about palliative care within intensive care.
1: Hello, my name is Carol, Carol Davis. I'm a palliative medicine consultant um, here in Southampton.
2: Uh, I'm David Harvey. I'm one of the intensive care and anaesthetic trainees based down in Wessex.
0: And I'm Rob Chambers. I'm an intensive care consultant here in Southampton with an interest in uh, palliative care. I think the, the easiest place to start is to talk about the, the setup you have with the involvement of palliative care within intensive care in Southampton because I gather it's somewhat different to perhaps the standard model in, in other places. Yeah, perhaps um I can
1: tell you about how this developed to move on to that. So um I moved hospitals, moved consultant jobs back in 95 to set up our hospital hospital palliative care team here. And from the outset, we wanted to be uh, very broad in our approach and we wanted to make sure that we weren't just seeing people with cancer, that we believed that um, palliative care was regardless of diagnosis. Um, So back in about um, 2012, 13, um, our team was seeing about 1200 new referrals a year and often between nine and 14. I've got quite good statistics that we've always kept between nine and 14 in those days were from in the general intensive care unit or from the intensive care units full stop. We have three adult intensive care units here, a general ITU, a cardiac ITU and neuro ITU. And I guess some of this is about a personal thing, but only a bit of it, but I will just mention that. So back in 2007, um, a very forward thinking, um, a uh, congenital heart disease nurse specialist contacted our team from cardiac ITU and um, to cut a long story short, there was a patient called Les. I can use his name because he told me to always tell his story, and um, I've taught with his, his bereaved wife um, several times since. It was unusual. He was in his late 50s and he had congenital heart disease, and he, and to quote him, was stuck between a rock and a hard place. He was ionotrope dependent, a haemophilter dependent, and every time they tried to wean his inotropes, the filter stopped and he wanted to go home and we got him home it was quite a big thing the cardiac intensivist thought we were a bit crazy to be honest and he got home and he stayed home for four or five days and then died um, suddenly developing symptoms and I remember his GP kept in touch by text Um, and then on the Friday he phoned which is when I knew things were changing anyway so that patient had always been in my mind and had always been in my mind there must be something that palliative care can do more with a critical care. And then I do have a personal side as well. And my sister died um, as a teenager in an intensive care unit in London. Um, and I, I guess that's part of this for me as well. But going back to 2012, 13, 13, 14, we were seeing nine patients a year. And I remember coming up to see a patient one day and just thinking, there must be so much more. Now's the time we've got to do something about this. So I went and talked to the um, clinical lead for anaesthetics and intensive care we came up with a plan we could create a PA of time four hours of medical intensivist time to work with the palliative care team and that's what we did yeah. and that person was Rob.
0: Yeah so, and, uh, so I, I came up with consultant on him 2013 and was uh, very quickly quickly offered this uh, role which um, had, hadn't really had a lot of uh, involvement with palliative care during training which I think is probably not unusual uh, nationally and something we might come on to so we then spent the next few months uh, immersing ourselves in each other's world a little bit so um, Carol came to join us on ICU for, uh, um, sort of for the daily ward rounds um, to see uh, you know, what we do um, and um, I went out to the MDTs and to visit the hospice and to um, see what the world was all about uh, and the, the interesting thing straight off was there was so much overlap between uh, the, the, the sort of knowledge and experience and what we do in terms especially in terms of um, you know, pain management and pharmacology and all the rest of it um, and instantly lots of learning happening
1: yeah the other thing I remember from those early days um, in that sort of orientation phase was um, recognition from everybody that palliative care wasn't just about the patients who were, who were most likely to die, that we could sit alongside um, critical care. And, and then you went out to the local hospices as well, didn't you, Rob?
0: Yeah, and, you know, it was fantastically interesting and sit there and listening to um, all of the issues and a lot of the issues that we, you know, we, we do, we try and manage day to day on ICU in terms of, especially in terms of symptom control. Um, and and realising, as Carol said very quickly, that uh, a lot of our patients uh, really overlapped in many ways um, and not, not, you know, and really not talking about the end-of-life care stuff. It's really about the suffering that goes on in ICU, which we all know happens. And I think we traditionally address that, perhaps uh, you know, further down the line in the um, follow-up clinics and discuss these things rather than focusing uh, at the time and alongside while we're treating patients.
1: We established intensive care link nurses, two of them, palliative care link nurses, um, and, and sort of built it over the year of 2014. And then it was, I think it was April 2014, Rob, that we actually created your, your Ring Fence yeah. Time. I managed to rejig my job plan. There was no extra funding for palliative care, but I was able to do a bit of rejigging to create some time. And we started doing a weekly palliative critical care ward rounds. On a Tuesday afternoon.
0: Yep. So we would um, meet in, you know, midday, and identify with the consultants of the patients who we thought uh, would benefit from uh, seeing the sort of this, this palliative critical care team, uh, and and trying to. And those first few weeks were about sort of explaining this wasn't just about the dying patients. This was about anyone who was. Uh, they were struggling on ICU often these were patients whose um, lives were significantly at risk and we can all we all know that those patients who are who are sometimes admitted already with maybe limitations of treatment just for level 2 care things like that Um, so where we could work alongside patients who are having NIV and provide symptomatic relief for breathlessness and all those kind of things Um, and those weekly ward rounds I think were really key to making palliative care visible normal
1: and what was what was important is increasingly over that time i think people's perceptions have changed and actually what we found was that when we look back those 9 to 14 patients a year we used to say see 9 10 years ago those were mainly we're going to withdraw can you come along Um, whereas now itu are absolutely okay doing that And so if they're withdrawing on a a, a sedated patient, they're probably only referred to as if there's some extra issues like some some dissent in the family or potentially some tricky symptoms. And more and more the people we see are the awake people on intensive care unit um, or the people facing uncertainty. Um, And I actually believe that modern palliative care, particularly modern acute hospital palliative care, is a lot about being alongside patients, families, and our colleagues in uncertain situations.
0: Um, Dave, I don't know if you want to,
1: because
2: you've sort of come into this and seen this.
0: uh, Yeah,
2: so, you know, I I initially trained in South Wales and then sort of came down to Wessex for my registrar role. And I think actually sort of, it was after a particular night shift that I'd, um, ended up involved in lots of sort of palliative care decisions on the ward, on the unit. And in the morning, I think I actually came on and it was you and I hadn't realised myself because I was new to the area that you were the palliative care lead and sort of said, I felt I was doing more palliative care than intensive care. And you sort of said, well, isn't that part of our role? And that sort of made me look at and think about it. And then the more anecdotally into myself, actually, you know, I feel it is quite a strong role and, and probably at that time hadn't thought about it, but we are heavily involved with, you know, the amount of patients on a unit that that can pass away or or in a position that you're sort of not going to escalate treatment you have those conversations you're involved in sort of symptomatic control on those complex patients so i then sort of this then led me to kind of go well am i alone in this is this just my own thought or feeling and you know i know it's as carol alluded to there's often a bit of um two roles two sort of uh, areas of thoughts where maybe People think it is a good thing and other people don't think it's a necessary thing for intensive care. So, you know, classically, I go and basically ask all my colleagues in the region. So did a survey of them and asked what they thought. And we had about, you know, in our response rate, we had a good response rate to survey. and We had about nearly 90 percent of the trainees did feel it was a role of the palliative care of an intensive care trainee. So that's that's, I think, a reflection of the sort of the newer intensivists that are coming through that they're recognizing this as a big role. That then led on to sort of about formalising some form of, of training or experience for trainees. So that, you know, that's a step in, in sort of helping with the education and treatment. But also, I think, which we've alluded to previously, is about familiarisation with the palliative care team and realizing it's it's not the sort of other specialty or, or a team that we need to go and refer to. We can work alongside the palliative care team and, it, and it's beneficial to both teams and also ultimately the patient.
1: I was just thinking, so from day one of of our hospital palliative care team, which started back in '95, we decided that our ethos, our mission, was to influence the care of far more people than we see. And I think the the ITU work is a fantastic Mm -hmm. example of that. Um, There's been all sorts of um, knock-on effects, not just for inpatients on the intensive care unit.
0: We were sat here earlier, weren't we, (laughs) going through the the many, many patients that um, we've both been involved with. There's been some some cases relating to um, opinions uh, you know we, we often get don't we ask this intensivist about appropriateness maybe for uh, somebody going to theatre for an operation or for surgery uh, or various other treatments and um, I can remember cases having had that exposure to palliative care knowing the right people to call then asked to go and see somebody who needed multiple complex interventions to get them to a point where they could then have an operation, which included somebody who, when you know, reading clinic letters and things, was coming to the end of um, uh, chemotherapy regimes, coming to the end of renal replacement um, uh, therapy, um, was able to actually have a frank discussion about what we could do that wasn't an operation, including speaking we're very lucky in, in this hospital we've got um another speciality palliative care um uh, a nurse specialist uh, whose background is in um uh, nephrology and so was able to come and actually to explain to a patient what dying when you stop dialysis looks like um and opened up the door for a patient who clearly had not vocalized perhaps to the family that they had been thinking about this before that actually they were ready to go to a hospice, they picked the hospice, and um, and actually a patient we got we actually did involve anaesthetics because we got them in um, pain relief nerve block, got them comfortable, got them out into the community, and got a, a very nice letter from the family saying that that was um, initially a surprise to them that they'd not heard their their loved one talk like this, but actually had a very very peaceful and dignified end to their life, which which almost certainly probably wouldn't have happened with uh,
2: intense medicalization in hospital. For me, that highlights that you get to see that as a referral in the middle of the night, going to see a patient like this. Should we do this? Should we do this? Can you give an intensive care opinion? I'd say previous to my training and experience here, I would have kind of, you know, for an example, maybe that we didn't think it was appropriate, you go along and say, you know, not for intensive care. don't think this is appropriate. Back to you guys. Extract yourself from the situation. And and it's easy to do Um, but actually I think with the experience of knowing the people who to contact knowing what's available having such close links with palliative care you actually improve the patient's experience and the family's experience by going oh actually why don't we get the you know um sort of palliative care specialist nurse to come and have a chat with you why don't we get such and such to speak to you. You I believe there's no David not
0: um not going along and explaining what we can't do uh, because that often doesn't um, sit well with you know with patients and or other teams giving somebody an option and an awareness of what palliative care has to offer then allows another option for people which is often what they want which is not being in pain or distressed or um, having their options explored and, and, and given those options.
1: In the first few minutes of meeting anybody even the, an unconscious patient if their family or the nurses are there I try and find out something about the patient as a person.
0: Yeah but a yeah, lot that point you've raised about you know spending just a few minutes finding the person behind that patient that sat in front of you but surprising how just spending an extra five minutes and asking the right questions and learning from these guys how to ask those questions just opens up this trove of really important background history and feelings and emotions that you can then it's, it's so much easier to guide your management and understand what's important to the patient
1: to the best of my knowledge, we've seen about 700 patients. Um, there have been about 700 referrals over the last five to six years um, from general ITU to our palliative care team.
0: So it went from about 9 to 14 a year to over 100, didn't it? Yeah, exactly 100,
1: twenty a year or so. Um, so. So to the best of my knowledge, to date, there's only been one family who took umbridge about palliative care. And um, it happened to be a haematology patient. And it happened to be that the haematologists had decided to make the palliative care referral. They did, made that decision away from the intensive care unit. And they had, I think, not told ITU that they were doing that so somebody in my team turned up to see the patient and the family were there and completely freaked out that palliative care were there usually it works much much better than that so in the other 699 or whatever it is it's worked differently than that in that the bedside nurse explains to the family and especially nowadays um, with with far few visitors because of COVID and everything um, you know that they'll phone up and they'll say, you know, we have a, a,
0: a team. And we've, we've been very keen that those referrals to the team can come from anyone within ICU. It's not just, uh, you know, from the medical team. It's the bedside nurse and fires and, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it's just got to be uh, somebody thinking of making that referral. And because it's been normalized, it means that the teams understand the role of palliative care. So they can explain to patients that this is actually... They're coming along to for this specific
2: point yeah you know, because you're struggling with this right. and not there I think that's what sort of highlighting that point the normalization of palliative care on the intensive care has allowed the medical staff the nursing staff all the sort of allied health professionals to realise what role palliative care can play because you know traditionally often you use the words palliative care and medical staff allied health care professionals will think end of life obviously there's a big role in that yeah. however as we've highlighted lots here that there's actually many other roles, which I think has you know, certainly influenced my training and my approach and the way I, I, I sort of go forward in my intensive care training. And I think it's reflected the fact that nursing staff are empowered and feel confident and know your role. So we'll often contact either yourself or the palliative yeah. care nurse specialist.
1: Yeah. So we know that of the um, hundreds of patients we've seen over the last few years, that 50% of the referrals die on intensive care and 50% don't. Uh, The 50% who don't, 50% of those die in our hospital. But again, 50% don't. So that's 25% of the patients referred Mm. to palliative care from the intensive care unit leave the hospital. Um, And that comes as quite a surprise to people and can sometimes be very useful.
0: It was a a shock, but when I first was going to your MDT meetings, it's surprising to see on the board a fair number of names of people that we've looked after who are now being followed up by by palliative care um, and actually providing that continuity of care between ITU and the ward and that's something that's been really important for us especially for
2: some of the complex long-staying patients. That step from the intensive care unit to the ward can sometimes be quite a big step for the patient
0: and they're often the we involve palliative care in our, often in our complex, long-staying patients. So patients who have become, you know, who IT has become almost normalised, you know, they've been there for months and months.
2: So it's, it's often a huge step, isn't it? Yeah. But you don't hear about that until the follow-up clinic where, you know, prior to this, you know, they go, oh, well, that was really big step and I found it really hard. And whereas your sort of your involvement, Carol, and, and your team is, is, is smoothing that transition at times
1: and, and i think there's something for the staff too yeah. um in medicine there are so many instances and um it must be particularly so on intensive care that you don't know the end of the story yeah, and so, for, so for, for, yeah. for, 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 for these patients we we come back yeah we, you know we knit like back the next day and say oh they're doing really well it's
0: quite surprising i mean we're used to aren't we we get people better but I, our expectation is that maybe they will leave ITU and, and stay in hospital for a while or, or maybe not leave hospital but actually the, the number of times you've come back and said so and is doing really well actually they left last yeah. week or whatever so again highlighting that uh, you know the involvement with the with palliative care is not just uh, for end-of-life patients this is about a significant number to trying to get patients better at home and out of
1: hospital so palliative care grew up from the cancer world and it's been a big challenge to, to, to make sure that palliative care goes beyond cancer. So we as a team have worked really hard across the hospital here in Southampton on that. And it's 40% of our referrals are for people who have got a disease other than cancer. But interestingly, of the patients referred to the palliative care team from the general intensive care unit, 80% don't have cancer. Um, I
0: think you've become a, one of the few palliative care uh, consultants in the country with sp- specialist interest in major trauma. <laughs> well major trauma, but actually
1: more than major more than major trauma out of hospital cardiac arrest. Yeah.